Welcome to the Three Strands Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for joining us. It is our hope and prayer that you will experience God's blessing in your life through our ministry. At Three Strands Church, our goal is to create a culture of redemption where people are free to experience the truth and grace of Jesus Christ. We're kicking off a new series today called Survival Guide. Maybe you uh, will be able to relate to the church that Paul wrote this letter to, the church at Ephesus. <clears throat> they were a church that understood what it felt like to, f- to have all of life kind of fighting against them, right? And so maybe you find yourself in a spot where it seems as if life is fighting you. Um, you're trying to just do simple things, and yet like life seems to be making it more difficult, Right? And so this church understood that well. Just, just by way of example, who, who, let's just raise your hand if currently right now or in the past two weeks you've been ill, right? Can you raise your hand if you, yeah. So it's like, I don't know if I've met many people that haven't, it seems like in the last two weeks, Maddox, no? Me either, man. So we're immune. It must be the USC sweatshirts. See, I got that on the podcast for you. That's, that's paying off a debt. That's how you pay off a debt, man. I'm just saying. Like gazelle intensity. See what I'm saying? But uh, yeah, and so sometimes it can feel as if like the whole world's fighting against you. You ever wake up and just feel like that? You just think like, you, you wake up after sleeping the whole night and you're exhausted. <laughs> and you're just kind of like, I just slept the whole night, I should be refreshed, right? Or, or you get paid only to be out of money that night. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just kind of like, it doesn't make sense. Like life is, is fighting against you. And, and the church at Ephesus kind of knew what that felt like. So let me give you some background on this church. So, so Paul planted this church. Ephesus was like a kind of a major metropolitan area in the Roman Empire. It wasn't, um, it, it was more um, Greek influenced. And then when Rome took over, um, it was kind of controlled by Rome. But it was like the last major stop if you were transporting goods from like Asia over to like Rome or Italy, anywhere in the Roman Empire there on the, on the western side. And so it became like this big kind of metropolitan hub. So it was a diverse city, but they had developed a lot of um, like polytheism or like they believed in multiple gods from all of the Greek influence, right? You guys get that. The Greeks were all into like all these multiple gods, Zeus and uh, Athena and, and all these different gods, right? And so Ephesus was like a, a hub of that influence. It became kind of like a, a hub of Greek influence. And so they were very committed to that. So Paul comes on his third missionary journey, and he plants this church. And it's very offensive to the culture, right, for, for many different reasons. First of all, they just taught one God, and, and so that flew in the face of an already kind of established religion, the way the Ephesians viewed the world. And, and they were a culture that like, placed a lot of great value on religious ritual, ceremony, um, um, beautiful architecture and building great statues and buildings to their gods, right? And, and, and maybe you've seen pictures of some of these things. So I got, I got a couple of pictures from ancient Ephesus just to show you. I don't remember what order I got them in, so just flash them up and out. So they, they had this huge um, amphitheater that could seat 25,000 people. Now it's obviously broken down and run down today but there used to be a high wall on this side and you couldn't even like see the 
the stands from the sea, but now that's kind of busted down. That's where like the stage would have been just behind that busted down wall. And it can see 25,000 people. By comparison, that's slightly bigger than Rupp Arena. So for, you know, 1,000, 2,000 years ago to have something like that was pretty impressive in that time, right? And so I think I got an aerial shot of that same theater, right? So that gives you like an aerial look. You could see like where the stage would have been in the backstage area, and then there would have been a high wall back there. And it was like this intimidating, as you came up on Ephesus, you would see this humongous structure and, and kind of be in awe of it. And then I think I got another picture there of, this is the ruins of the Temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, right? Temple of Artemis, as the Greek the Greeks called her, or the Romans referred to her as the the goddess Diana. Maybe you've heard it said that way, right? The goddess, goddess, goddess Artemis or Diana, the Romans called her. And so she was like um, the Ephesians version of uh, like Aphrodite, right? She was like a god, fertility god, a, a sex god, for lack of a better way to say it, right? And so if you've ever seen, I didn't put any pictures of this up here because, you know, we're not going to, it's some fake god. So, but if you've ever seen like a picture of the statue of the goddess Artemis or the goddess Diana, it's like this statue that has like, you know, just graphic. Let's just say it that way, right? It's graphic. And so, um, but this was her temple and it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. People would travel just to come to this temple, which was really a house of prostitution. And so there would be priestesses of the goddess Diana, and they would be in this temple, and people would come from all over the Greek and Roman world to pay to have sex with one of these priestesses in honor of the goddess Diana. In fact, much of Ephesus' economy was built around this god. And they had a bunch of silver um, makers and bronze makers, and they would make trinkets. And when people came, they would buy these trinkets to take back as like a souvenir of their trip to the temple of Diana, right? And so a lot of their economy was based on trade from all these other places. And then tourism, in a sense, religious tourism, prostitution, and trinkets, Christianity, of course, flew in the face of all of that. And so you could see where the frustration would be. In fact, we won't look at it, but if you ever flip to Acts chapter 19, there were literally riots in Ephesus because of Paul and what he was preaching. They dragged a couple of Paul's followers into that big amphitheater I just showed you, and the mob followed them. In fact, the text in Acts 19 says some of them didn't even know what they were doing. It just got got out of hand right? Like a riot tends to do. And they were upset over the fact that because people were becoming Christians, they were now being taught not to buy these trinkets to these other gods, not to go in and pay for sexual services at the temple. And so it was hurting their economy and they had this great backlash against Christianity. I think I've got a, like an artist rendition of what that temple looked like before it was broken down over the centuries, right? And this was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, right? And this is how they worshipped in Ephesus. And Paul plants this church that flies in the face of all these religious beliefs, causes rioting and frustration. So the church at Ephesus was now under attack from the community they lived in 
because everything they were saying was offensive to the people they lived with. On top of that, like I said earlier, it just didn't make sense to the Ephesians because you're talking about a single God and they're used to worshiping 20, 30 gods. And so most of the Ephesians would have viewed Christianity as unsophisticated or inadequate or too simplistic to really meet all of their religious needs. And so you have all these factors playing together, the, the, the blow to their economy, the lack of sophistication in their worship of one single God. And then you have another factor at play, which this church that Paul planted is comprised of Jewish converts and Gentile converts who were now having trouble getting along and thinking of each other as maybe not quite as Christian as they were. Because the Gentile converts, they didn't follow all the rules like the Jews did. And the Jews thought they weren't good enough Christians. And the Gentiles thought, we got all this freedom that Paul's preaching about. And those people are just legalists. And they weren't getting along. And so you have all this conflict outside of the church and even in the church. And it manifests itself in beatings and stonings and persecution and executions of Christians. And so they were a church that understood what it felt like to have the whole world seeming to be against you and to not know if you could even make it through the next day and to feel as if you're just trying to survive but the world keeps fighting you at every turn. And so Paul writes them a letter from prison. Paul's in prison in Rome and he writes this letter to the church at Ephesus in order to explain to them that God's plan wants to give them tools to survive in a world that's fighting against them. In fact, God's plan doesn't just want to cause them to survive. God's plan actually will cause them to thrive. And they've forgotten that. They are so overwhelmed with life fighting them that they've forgotten what Paul's about to explain in this short four-chapter letter. That following God's plan isn't just the key to survival. It isn't just a survival guide. It's actually the key to thriving in a world that's fighting against you. And so he's going to remind them of some things that maybe they've forgotten or maybe they never knew, but maybe just life being against them so long has blocked their way of thinking clearly about God. And he says, let me remind you of some things that if you grasp onto these things will not only get you through the world that's fighting against you, but will cause you to excel in this world that's fighting against you, to thrive. And that's what we're going to talk about in this series. How to thrive in a world that's fighting against you. So today, I just want to talk to you about a couple things from the first part of this letter. Let, let, me, uh, let me first read them to you. The first one I want to talk about, I'm going to put it on the screen. It's called Heavenly Realms. I don't know if you've ever heard that in the Bible before or not, but Heavenly Realms. And this word, you're going to hear in just a second in this verse I'm going to read. Paul writes this phrase six times in these four chapters. The Heavenly Realms. And what he's referring to is this kind of unseen piece of the world. Does that make sense? Like, like he's trying to tell them, 
there's this piece of the world that's spiritual that you can't see with your eyes or hear with your ears or touch with your fingers. It's unseen pieces of God. And I need to remind you about those because they will give you what you need. They will energize you with what you need to thrive when it feels like everything's against you. The heavenly realms. Let me read you what he says to start this letter off in Ephesians chapter 1. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am writing to God's holy people in Ephesus. Let's keep that in mind, right? So he's not writing to like a bunch of heathens, right? He's writing to church people, right? He's writing to people who he calls God's holy people. And then he goes on further and says, who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. You know, it's possible to be a Christian, to be a faithful follower of Christ Jesus and have forgotten all the good things God wants you to remember. Like it's possible to be devoted to Jesus and still be overwhelmed by the world around you. And that's why Paul's writing this letter to them. It says, Who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus, may God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. And then he says this in verse 3. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. And there's that phrase, in heavenly realms. And what he's trying to say was, hey, you, follower of Jesus, faithful servant of God. The world may be fighting against you. You might feel like you're not making any progress or headway. But remember that God has already blessed you, not with some, not with some unseen blessing, with all unseen blessing that exists in the heavenly realm, that exists in the places you can't see, in the places you can't touch or feel from day to day. He's poured out all of that blessing on you already. One commentator wrote it this way. He said, The unseen heavenly realms are the sphere beyond this world of senses, which is the Christian's ultimate home, and with which we now, in a measure, have some communication. It's the things you can't see. It's the eternity in heaven. It's the peace in your heart. It's the hope of the future. And God is saying, I've already given you all of that. The world is blinding you from that. But if you can get beyond what you can see and hear and touch and feel and smell, if you can get beyond your worldly senses to the unseen blessing, you'll be able to endure. Not just endure, but thrive when the world seems like it's all against you. I've already unleashed all this blessing on you. And I wrote it down this way. No matter how bad your scenario, God has already provided the blessing to survive. But it's easy to forget that. Let me, let me say that again so you don't miss it. Because some of us came into the room today with a, with a bad scenario, right? Maybe a bad financial scenario, a bad marriage scenario, a bad dating relationship scenario, a bad uh, just problem with our parents, a bad problem at work, a bad scenario that doesn't seem to be getting better and keeps fighting you at every turn. 
And so let me say it again so, so that you can hear it. No matter how bad the situation, no matter how bad the scenario, God has already provided the blessing to survive. It could just be that the blessing is in the heavenly realm. And you're trying to see it with your senses. You're trying to have it make sense with your eyes or with what you see each day when you wake up. And he's saying, no, you've got to look past that, that I've given you every blessing of hope and future and healing and progress. You might not be able to see it, but it's there. I promise you. That, that's the first thing Paul wants you to see if you feel like the world's fighting against you. And here's the next thing we're going to look at today. God chose us. Now this one is difficult for some people to hear, okay? But, but just bear with me for a minute, okay? So in verse 4, and he goes on and says this. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. And that's a difficult one for some people because it, it raises questions like, well, why did God choose some and not choose others? Or, or why did God choose me? Or what about free will? And those are good questions, okay? Those are good questions. And we'll get to those in just a minute. But, but before we answer those, let, let's ask the questions that we should be asking first. Here's the first question you should be asking. The first question you should be asking is, what does God really say? Even if I don't like it, what does God really say? And then the next question is, why does he say it? See, those are the first two questions to Bible study. Not, not like doubt or answer all my like, questions about the subject. The first question's got to be, what does God say? Even if I don't like it, I want to hear it, God. And then after that, why are you saying that, God? Why are you saying that to me? So let's answer those two questions first, and then we'll come back to it. They're, they're good questions, but let's just get it kind of in the right order. So what is God saying here? What he's saying is that he chooses us. He picks you. He picks you before you were thought of. Before you were born, before the world was around, God handpicked us. He decided to choose us, to love us. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. It says this, The Lord our God has secrets known to no one. We are not accountable for them, but we and our children are accountable forever for all that he has revealed to us. Can, can, I, can I just offer you this suggestion? What if we didn't worry about what we didn't know from God and instead just took responsibility for what we do know from God? So let's start at that place. That God says, I choose you. That God says, I handpick you. That God says, I decide before the world was even made to love you and to choose you. That's all we're accountable for in that verse. So let's answer those two questions, right? What does God actually say? He says, I choose you. He's not saying, I, I saw that you would decide to follow me. He doesn't say that. I mean, you can, you can rewrite Scripture 
But I'm saying there's verse after verse after verse that talks about this. And so what does he really say? He doesn't say, I look down through the corridors of time, right? So I've, I've heard all of that, you know, from people on both sides of this. I've looked down through the corridors of time as God, and I've, I've seen how you would respond. And so therefore, I know that you'll be a Christian, and that's my way of choosing you. No, no, no. You, you are lessening the specialness of what God has done for you. That he has handpicked you. Doesn't say that. Says he chose us. He predetermined. He decided ahead of time to love us and to choose us and to pick us out. And so why did he do that? Is it because I'm so great? Is it because God was like, that guy there, he's got a lot of talent. I need that guy on my team. That guy can really sing. That guy can really play the guitar. That guy can really preach. I, I need that guy in my church someday, so I'm picking that one. Is that why he did it? No. Look at what God said in Deuteronomy chapter 7 to the Hebrews. He said, The Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other nations. For you were the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you. Did God pick you out because you were the best? Because you were the greatest? Because you were the most talented? No, in fact, He often picks people out who are the least talented. Who are the lowest. The least great. Okay, so maybe He picked me out because I'm not as bad as other people. Is that possible? Like maybe because I, he saw that I would be pretty good and other people would be pretty bad. And so he's like, well, I'll take that guy. I'll love him because he's pretty good. Look what he says to the Jewish people again in Deuteronomy chapter 9. He says, you must recognize that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land because you are good, for you are not. You are a stubborn people. Those same principles apply in the New Testament too. It's not like God loves us more or less than He loved Israel. We're still stubborn people. We're still all sinful. There's no one better than anyone else. So is that why? No. It's just because it was God's plan. It was just because He loved you. It wasn't because you were great. It wasn't because you were better. It wasn't because you were more pure. God chose us. Look at verse 5 back in Ephesians chapter 1, where he goes on, digs into this even deeper. He says, God decided in advance to adopt you into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Nothing about our goodness, nothing about our qualifications, nothing about our, our standing or our ability or our effort or how important we would be or how good we would be for God's team it was just his plan it gave him great pleasure to adopt you adoption is the perfect picture of what God does for us what part does the child play in adoption no part no part in fact imagine a child being adopted imagine for a second a child being adopted going home with a loving family Spending a year with that family and just being lavished with love. Really the best environment they could imagine. And then a year in, the child looks at the parents and says, this adoption's no good. 
I didn't have any say in it. I'd like you to take me back. Imagine that. That's what it's like when we look at God and be like, God, who, who are you to pick me? What, what about my decisions? It's like it almost doesn't even make sense. We, we should be like so thankful that he, that he adopted us that we wouldn't even dare question it. We think that somehow like God picks us because we're lovely. But that isn't true. That isn't true. God doesn't choose us because we're lovely. No, we become lovely because God chooses us. Sometimes we get the cart before the horse. We think opposite of the way God thinks. See, do you get that? Like we don't, God doesn't pick us. God doesn't choose us because we're so lovely. No, you become lovely because God picks you. Look at the rest of this passage. Let me read it to you. Start there in verse 6. It says, So we praise God for the glorious grace He has poured out on us who belong to His dear Son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that He purchased our freedom with the blood of His Son and forgave our sins. He has showered His kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us. Here's what we're responsible for, right? God has now revealed to us His mysterious, His mysterious, his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. Not to make me happy. Not to make me comfortable. Not because I'm so great that he does what I want. To fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. You ready? At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for He chose us in advance. He chose us in advance. All I can do is read what's there. If you don't like it, I can't help you with that, but I can just read what's there first, right? That God handpicks us to be special to Him for no reason of our own, but simply to love us. Does this violate my free will? No, not really. In fact, God's choosing and my free will work together in the Bible. In, in Revelations, Jesus says, let all who hear and want to come, come. Now, doesn't that sound like free will? How does it work together? The phrase in that chapter in Revelation that's used in the Greek is actually like the phrase that refers to like a hungry man coming to get food. Like a hungry man coming. God has implanted into you a desire for Him. That you are unfulfilled without Him. You're like a starving man coming to food. And so those two things work together. You would never come to God without Him pulling you to Him. You would never get in God's family without Him adopting you. When we say it's our decision, we rob God of the credit He deserves. We take on ownership of our own salvation and we steal just a little bit of glory from God's greatness. And Paul is saying, you've got to remember that you have been handpicked by God. No matter how bad it gets, 
No matter how much the world is fighting against you, you have been handpicked to be loved and adopted and grafted into the family of God. If you can get past your senses and remember that, you'll thrive. You'll thrive. So why does he say this stuff? Remember I said you got to ask, what does he say and then why does he say it? Because he wants you to understand a couple unseen blessings from the heavenly realms that you aren't going to see with your normal senses. Here are those blessings. You ready? The first thing he wants you to see is this, that you can have assurance. You don't have to wonder if you're part of God's family, if you're saved, if you're a Christian. Because salvation is all about God and he's always trustworthy. There's never a time when God breaks his promise, ever. In fact, God has always been more committed to my salvation than I have, always. He's always been more committed to your salvation than you have. Look at John chapter 6, verse 37 and 39. It says this, Jesus says, Those that the Father has given me will come to me. Like a hungry man going for food. God has implanted that hunger in them and they will come to me and I will never reject them. And this is the will of God that I should not lose even one of all those He has given me. You can be sure. You can have assurance. Here's the next unseen blessing they want you to get. We can have hope. You can have hope. Look at what he says at the end of chapter 1, verse 11. He says, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. See, you can have hope no matter how bad the life you have gets. You can have hope because the promise is that God is working everything out according to his plan. It's like a, a, a big, huge, you go to like a castle over in England, you see like a huge tapestry on the wall. And it's gorgeous. But you flip it over and on the back, it's like a bunch of different like strands and cords sticking out of the back of it. It looks like chaos. Have you ever seen something like that? But then you flip it back over and it looks beautiful. That's a lot like our lives. You look at the backside and it looks like chaos. doesn't make any sense, but someday you'll get to heaven and God will flip the canvas around and you'll be like, ha, oh, you, you were... We're making everything work out according to your plan all along, weren't you? You're like, why did he break up with me? Why did she walk out on me? Why does he beat me? Why did they start using drugs? Why can't I get ahead financially? Why don't we have what they have? Why doesn't our relationship look as blessed as their relationship? Why did he get the hot girlfriend and I got stuck with, you know, the leftovers? I remember saying that to myself in college a lot. Like, why does that guy get a good-looking girlfriend? He's a jerk, right? But you see the back side of a canvas. The back side of the tapestry looks like chaos. And God is saying, when I flip that around someday in the heavenly realms where you can't see, when I flip that around, you're going to be like, whoa, you were working that out the whole time according to your plan. You can have hope. God is trustworthy. And I wrote it down this way. I, I know I will come out of all things stronger because God is working all things out through His sovereignty. 
I know I will come through all things stronger because God is working all things out through His sovereignty, through His power. Hope. And then the last blessing He wants you to see when you, when you latch on to the heavenly realms and the fact that God chooses you is that we can have boldness. We can have boldness in sharing the gospel. You think, well, people are hard and they don't respond. They don't listen to what I have to say and I try to share my faith and it comes out all muddled. It doesn't make sense. And I ask somebody if they want to follow Jesus and they say no or they say I'll think about it or they don't say anything or they say yes and the next week they, they, they disappear and you never see them again. And you think I can't take it anymore and Paul's saying no. No, don't be discouraged by that. Look beyond what you can see and have boldness because salvation is all about God. You just obey and continue to preach the gospel and God takes care of the results. God does the saving, we do the obeying. Just preach the gospel. And he hits all these areas in this, these two tiny little ideas. Hey, look beyond your normal senses to the heavenly realms. And in those heavenly realms, I want you to see the great value that comes from being chosen by the God of the universe. And with that choosing, with that adoption, comes these amazing blessings that you can't see with your eyes or touch with your hands. And those blessings are, you can be sure that you're in God's family. You can have hope no matter how bad life is. And you can preach with boldness the gospel and share your faith no matter how hard people seem to it. This church needed that because they were feeling overwhelmed. It's arrogance for us to sit around and debate theological nuance when all that's really required is obedience. You say, if, if people, if God decides who's going to be a Christian ahead of time, then why even tell anybody about the gospel? Paul didn't see it that way. In fact, Paul considered it something that drove him to preach the gospel harder because now he didn't have to worry about the results. It didn't matter if people responded in faith or if they wanted to chuck stones at him. The saving was up to God. All that's up to us is the obedience. And it pushed him to share more. In fact, he mentions that in Romans. Do I stay silent for fear of persecution? Do I say nothing when no one responds? No, I press on for the gospel. And I trust God to be faithful. We sit around and we debate over, do I pick or does, does God pick? What if we just left the unknown things to God and we were just responsible for what he revealed to us? You know, the reason that subject is difficult for so many of us is because we have a wrong view of the universe. And I, and I called the title of today The Center of the Universe. For most of human history, it was thought that the center of the universe was Earth. But they were wrong, right? And sometime in the 16th century, Copernicus came up with this idea after looking through a telescope that the Earth was not the center of the universe. That the sun was the center of the universe because it looked as if everything was revolving around the sun. 
And for a few hundred years, everybody believed the sun was the center of the universe. And then in the 19th century, scientists changed their mind again and said, no, the sun is merely the center of our solar system. The universe has been expanding and expanding. How they think they know that, who knows, but... You know what the world believes now, the scientific community believes now is the center of the universe? They believe there is no center of the universe. Boy, you could trace our view of the center of the universe throughout history and really see what our world believes theologically. There is no definitive center of the universe now. The center of the universe is everywhere. That's what they say. And we went from a geocentric view of the universe to a solar-centric solar, a solar centric view of the universe, and now there's just no center of the universe. But all of those are wrong. Because the center of the universe is God. You know how I know that? Because when he spoke creation into existence, it all burst out from him. The problem for most of us, the reason that we tend to have so much trouble with this topic is because we live in a self-centered universe where it's all about us. My decisions, my choices, my benefits, my blessings. What can God do for me? We think God's like a UPS driver. And we want to know what he can do for us. I want to show you a list on the screen here. This first list is this passage we just went through. All these blessings and benefits that are ours available to us. We go through all of them here. It's, we're blessed with every spiritual blessing, it says. God loved us before time began. Chosen to be, we're chosen to be holy and without fault in his eyes. We've been adopted into his family, purchased out of our slavery, our sins forgiven, showered us with kindness, united us with Christ, given us an inheritance. And he's given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. All those things that apply from us. And it's easy to read through that passage and think, man, it is all about me what God's going to do for me. But if you look closer at the passage, you see another list that pops up woven all throughout it. And here's that list. Verse 1, Paul says, it's the will of God. Verse 3 says, all praise be to God. Verse 5 says, God did the choosing. Verse 4 says that. Verse 5 says, God decided ahead of time. Verse 5 says, this is what he wanted to do. Verse 9 says, God revealed the mysteries to us. Verse 9 also says, he did this to fulfill his own good plan. Verse 11, according to his plan. Verse 12, God's purpose is to bring praise and glory to himself. And then at the very end, I'm going to show you that verse in a second. God did all he did so we would praise and glorify him. We've mistakenly interpreted all of the blessing for us as the point as the center and it is not it is simply the means to the end God's blessing on us is not the goal God's blessing on us is what enables us to live out the goal which is to give him more glory and more praise if we miss that then we're not Christians if we think it's all about us then we don't know Jesus we've never met the real Jesus if we think it's all about making me happy, 
If we think it's all about making me comfortable, if we think it's all about getting my enemies back, if we think it's all about making me safe financially, no. It's all about verse 14. How he ends this paragraph. Look at verse 14. Goes on to say about giving us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that you can be sure you're going to have an inheritance. It's a promise, it's not a question. He did this so that we would praise and glorify Him. What if you have a wrong view of the universe? You've been trying to see everything through your human senses. And the world's fighting against you and you're starting to feel overwhelmed by that. And you think, this doesn't make any sense. I'm not happy. Listen, listen to this as we close today, right? The goal is not blessing from God that leads to happiness for me. The goal is blessing from God that leads to glory for Him. You guys get that? I mean, do we see that in the passage or do we make that up? The goal is not blessing for me to get happiness for me. The goal is blessing for me to get glory for God. Someday He's going to point at me and He's going to say, you see that guy? He was a nobody. He wasn't any better than anybody else. He wasn't greater than anyone. He didn't have more talent than anybody else. He wasn't more pure than anybody else. But I saw him before he was even thought about. And I picked him out and adopted him into my family. Say, how do I know if I'm that person? You know because right now in your heart, you feel like a hungry man that needs fed. And if you don't, you're not. But right now, you feel that in your heart. You feel, I'm hungry. I need God. Because that's Him. That's Him planting that hunger in you that can only be satisfied with His meal, His family. In fact, if you look through the passage, I don't have it on on the screen, but the only thing it says for us is when you feel that hunger, Will you say to God, I believe it? That's it. So will you follow Jesus? Will you follow something bigger than you? Bigger than yourself? Will the universe become about something more than you? Will you embrace what God says, even if it doesn't all make sense to you? You should. Because he loved you before you were even thought of. Because he picked you out before you were even born. And that's why Jesus rose from the dead. To buy your freedom, to adopt you in, to give you unseen blessing in the heavenly realms so that God would get all the credit. So today I want to challenge you with this as we close. Right now in your heart, if you feel that hunger, a hunger for God's love, a hunger for God's relationship, a hunger to be part of God's family, that's him saying, I want to save you. I want to rescue you. All you have to do is just, in your heart, believe it. Just believe it. Even if you can't make sense of it all. You're not responsible for what you can't make sense of. You're responsible for what he's revealed to us. 
So today I want to challenge you with that, to be part of something greater than yourself, to step beyond the self-centered universe to a theocentric universe, a God-centered universe, and invite him to do something greater than you've ever imagined. And just believe that he loves you. Believe that he's already adopted you into his family.